Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On tonight's show, I have a broadcast I did with Keith Hansen of the Alembic Files. The interview date was April 6, 2013, and it's concerning my book, Prophet of Evil, which is available on Amazon or currently on my website, WilliamRamseyInvestigates.com. Also, my documentary, The Smiley Face Killers, who was abducting, torturing, and murdering college-aged men in the U.S. and the U.K. is available now on Vimeo.com. B-I-M-E-O. Thank you. This is the Olympic Files, and um, I'm Al. I'm Theo. Yes. And we have with us today, it's a very serious topic that we're going to discuss. A lot of people think this is kind of fooling around, but with us today is uh, William Ramsey. Uh, he's the author of two books in particular. The last one has just re- uh, been released, and it's, it's an absolute bombshell. And uh, after I've done this to tease you, we're going to talk about the first book he's done, which I think everybody should um, be aware of, and that is his book on uh, Alistair Crowley. It's Prophet of Evil, Alistair Crowley, 9-11, and the New World Order. And, yeah, he can tie it all together. So, William, uh, thanks a lot for coming on the Olympic Files. It's good to talk to you. It's good to talk to you as well. Thanks for having me. As we said before, the, uh, the two books, the second one is uh, Abomination, Devil Worship and Deception, West Memphis, Three Murders, and that goes back to uh, a very high-profile case that went away for a while when all three people were incarcerated. They've been released. Now they're all media stars, and something smells about that as well. And also, William, I tell you what, you produced two, VD, two DVDs, documentaries. Uh, do you want to just hit that before we get going? Yeah, uh, I have one on Aleister Crowley. It's kind of like a visual study about him and kind of uh, follows the same narrative as the book. And then another one I did in a cold Hollywood where, you know, just over the years I've watched Hollywood and they've clearly uh, integrated all kinds of symbols and signs that are deal with the occult and also kind of the same type of uh, concepts that Crowley uh, propounded. So uh, that's a cold Hollywood volume one. And those can all be seen video on demand on uh, Amazon or purchased there, as well as my books are all on Amazon and Kindle. And um, my eyeglasses are, fa- are failing me, uh, so I stumbled a little bit over that, that other title about um, Abomination, Double Worship, and Deception in the West Memphis uh, Three Murders. Uh, I believe that you are uh, willing to come on and talk about that as well. I mean, that's, that is tough, tough moral slogging. Oh, it's, un- it's unbelievable. I think that most people can easily just accept what uh, is put out there as the public story, which is, you know, these three poor kids were railroaded by an unjust and corrupt state and uh, were railroaded for the murder of three eight-year-olds. But uh, after my research into the entire case, and, you know, I, I kind of came upon the case through Aleister Crowley. Uh, that was kind of an issue in the, in the original trial in 1994 was Crowley's influence upon the central character, a guy by the name of Damien Eccles. And uh, any, anyway, once I went through and researched it all, I got the exact opposite, where these were actually were the justly convicted and sentenced killers, and they should never have been released. And uh, this kind of central character is now out going on a national book tour uh, talking about, you know, his innocence, and they blame some other poor guy in the, in the town of West Memphis for the murders. And this guy had tons of celebrity support out of Hollywood, like A-listers, top-of-the-line guys, Peter Jackson, Johnny Depp. And uh, now he's in Salem, Oregon, uh, Salem, Massachusetts, the head of the witch trials, acting like a witch. He's tattooed himself with the, the gnarliest, nastiest uh, symbols from Satanism all 
through the ages and associates with people from the process church of the final judgment and uh he's got a bunch of like hypno program followers he calls chupacabra and uh it's just incredibly ugly in the police and you know the public and even the christian media's information falls upon deaf ears it just they just don't seem to recognize danger or an injustice so that's why i titled the book abomination uh yeah and uh, going back to your first book about which we will speak now, I'm going to throw out the first question. Uh, Theo, you might have a question for him uh, by all means, but I'm going to ask a baseline uh, question to more or less set the stage here because I think in times past, William, people mistake the fact that they think you're really a Crowley fan. You're more of a, Cr- a Crowley, I don't know if I would say biographer, but um, you don't believe necessarily that this guy was clowning or, uh, you know, just a, a kind of media figure that did not have some kind of power during his lifetime. Uh, would you go ahead with that? Yeah, I don't. I, I think that if people read my book, they I can't believe they'd ever think that I was some kind of Crowley sympathizer or somebody who liked Crowley. I take the opposite uh, position. I don't like anything to do with Crowley. He's an incredibly evil person. Uh, he was about as right-hand a man to the devil as you could imagine. He believed himself the prophet of Satan, and, uh, you know, my first book is a critique of him. And it's actually a more, what I consider to be a more accurate critique and his effect, and it's also a critique of his influence and what he's influenced upon, uh, you know, the world. And my second book, which I was, I was trying to finish before I got caught up in this whole abomination thing, was something about the followers of Crowley, which is about three-quarters of the way done, which I'm just trying to hammer out. But he's had an incredible influence upon our culture. He was uh, clearly a spy. When I first started researching Crowley, I didn't really know, but he clearly was uh, an agent of the English, you know, perfidious Albion from a very early age, probably right after he left Cambridge when, when he was in his early 20s up until the end of his life. And uh, he, he and his associates had a hand in investigating World War One. They were... His associates are involved with Hitler, uh, World War II. He made all kinds of strange, bizarre, satanic prophecies about war. And, you know, that those wars were incredibly vicious. And, you know, just the bloodletting was off the charts. So Crowley lived through all these, you know, both world wars and uh, conflicts. And uh, was an incredibly influential figure, although I think that his influence on anybody who becomes a Crowleyite is... Uh, Always baneful. Uh, Theo, do you want to throw a question William's way? Yeah. Did Aleister Crowley father the wife of George Bush Sr.? That's always that's always a good question, and it's <laughs> one I've fielded many times. The story goes is that uh, uh, George Bush Jr.'s mother, uh, Barbara Bush, uh, was the offspring of Aleister Crowley. Well, her mother is a person by the name of Pauline Robinson. And she, uh, was known as kind of, she was a socialite. Her husband, who she was married to, was, uh, a magazine, a runner of, uh, you know, a prominent magazine. And she had gone, and this is known, she was associated with one of Crowley's friends, uh, somebody by the name of O'Neill. And, you know, the thing to do for the socialites and people with quite a bit of money back then was always to go to Paris. I mean, Paris was the, you know, was, uh, the Belle Epoque was how well, they referred to it. It was a cultural place. It was a place of, you know, Hemingway and the writers and all these other great artists and the Impressionists. So uh, she was known to have been there in 1924, right after Crowley was on the skids, after he got kicked out of Italy by Mussolini. 
at his magical venture called the Abbey of Salima, he was he kind of uh, stuck his tail between his legs and went back to France. He would subsequently subsequently get kicked out of France. But while he was there, he was doing all kinds of research that required the uh, the assistance of uh, ritual, you know, women. And uh, Pauline Robinson was rumored to be one of these women in 1924. And upon her return to the United States uh, nine months later, 1925, and this all kind of works out in time, but Barbara Bush was born, and then um, she had a encounter when she was 16 with George Bush Sr., who was 18, and it has all the whiffs and, and strange kind of elements of an arranged marriage. But, you know, they had married, they were married and had, you know, five, six kids, one of them who passed away from leukemia, and one of those children was George W. Bush, who was uh, president during 9-11, and the 9-11 mega ritual, uh, you know, had all of the occult markings of Crowley. It's all there, 1193, 77, 175, uh, wow. the towers themselves, the dates, September 11th, his behavior, it's all. And there are even more Crowley tie-ins there that happened. George Bush gave his famous New World Order speech, speech 11 years to the day before 9-11, the events of 9-11. So you see this long-range planning. Uh, by the hyper-elites. Barbara Bush, uh, he does have those same bug, buggy eyes that <laughs> Alistair Crowley had, that's for sure. You know, one of the brothers of the Bush family looks exactly like Crowley when he was younger. It's uh, Marvin. If you see pictures of Marvin, who's kind of behind the scenes, yeah. he looks exactly like Crowley did when Crowley was in his late 20s, early 30s. It's a carbon copy of Marvin Bush. Uh yeah, they're all ugly, too, by the way. I'm sorry, but... Well, Crowley was... Uh, the interesting thing about Crowley is what people didn't realize is he tried to keep hidden the fact that he had kind of a big, blocky head. So he would wear clothes or wear, like, scarves or something like that. And if you see uh, Barbara Bush, she has that same kind of block head. She has a big head, and she actually hides it, well, kind of in the similar way that Crowley would. She wears a lot of scarves or high high collared shirts or something like that to make sure it doesn't stand out. Um, <clears throat> not to be juvenile, but no, Evans, the only way that somebody actually suggested this to me in Crowley's one of Crowley's first books, which he called uh, White Stains, he adorned each copy of the first hundred copies that he had oh, in his vanity printer with his own genetic uh, material. Oh, no. So the only way, if somebody could find one of those original copies, which are probably in private libraries. You could do a genetic test and figure out if they, you know, through mitochondrial DNA, whether George Bush Jr. is actually mm. the I... true offspring. <laughs> uh, no, she just reminds me of a refrigerator with a head. That's all right. Uh, <clears throat> but but going back. She um... acts like Crowley, too. Look at her public statements. I mean, if you remember when Katrina hit uh, in Louisiana, you know, she had that kind of a cruel dismissiveness for the people, like this is really working out for them while they were all starving and the kids were being yeah. raped in the, the Superdome. And I've spoken with dr- more than one, you know, numbskull who considers himself a Republican, and they just adore her, and, and I can't fathom why, and they can't really explain to me why. It's, it's weird. Yeah. And she said to Larry King, like when, when George Bush Jr. first became president, and this is pretty well recorded, and it's disappeared. It went down the memory hole. But she told Larry King that anybody who touches her son, I will have you killed. She literally told King on CNN, I will kill you. Wow. Yeah. 
And, I mean, it just goes on and on. I mean, there's all kinds of things that give it away. When Ozzy Osbourne went to the White House and was speaking to George Bush and, you know, George Jr. said, Hey, Ozzy, how are you? Mom loves your stuff. You know? Wow. <laughs> that hit the memory hole, too. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff out there. I think the one with her, he says, Mom likes your stuff, is still out there on YouTube. But, you know, it's interesting, too, because you talk about a time where that uh, union might have occurred. And I just thought back real quickly to a period, I guess, about what? Gertrude Stein said you were all a lost generation. It was kind of like that, what would you call it, uh, this libertine uh, craziness uh, not seen in, again until the 70s uh, right. after World War I. the Roaring Twenties, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. It's like, like anything like The alcohol was forbidden, made it more exciting and flapper girls and yeah yeah so i mean anything could happen it was the, it was the virginia wolf days in a sense you know who knows who fathered what out of europe during that period but well, you the know, other thing is that crowley also was very casual about his who he had children with i mean he fathered kids up until his dying days he had one child with somebody who just said i want you to have my child he said okay and he had another one that he never even he was really just a you couldn't even call him a father in the sense like he took care of his kids because he never did there's never any records of him associating with his children he had one girl an offspring of one of his paramours and he he wrote in his confessions she'll make a nice little whore and, uh, so it's not outside the realm of possibility yeah. that he impregnated pauline robinson you also reminded me of one other thing and then we, we got to get back to the nitty-gritty here uh, uh, you're sitting on this digression that Theo started. But anyway, um, I just want to let you guys know, I thought this was interesting. Uh, in the Penn State sex scandal that involved, obviously, one of the assistant football coaches, uh, and everybody's pretty familiar with what went on there. The Second Mile charity with which Sandusky was uh, affiliated, uh, now everybody wonders just what went on with that. Um, that has been taken over by a uh, organization out of Texas, supposedly evangelical Christians, and I would just like to let you know that it's in good hands because on the board of that ministry that took over the second mile is Neil Bush's wife. So it's okay. The kids oh. are all right. Oh, gosh. I know that you can't make horrific. this up. Neil Bush, that's the guy that was friends with the Hinckley family. That's, there you go. Yep. yep. So his wife in Texas is taking care of the second mile uh, charity now under the umbrella of uh, whatever theirs is. I can't remember, but I looked at the uh, characters and like, it did not surprise me to see somebody in there it was a player uh, like Neil Bush's yeah. wife. I, well, that, that, that wasn't a one-man wonder, that Sandusky thing. He no, was associated no. with a guy named Javits, who was just an absolute freakish pedophile. And those, that guy was networked with everybody. So Sandusky was not some kind of lone wolf. By I mean, there's a huge cover-up there. And the guys who actually took the fall in UPenn, the, there was like three administrators. They got off easy there was a lot more i think there was a lot more uh circumstantial evidence that indicated they knew a lot more what was going on no so he yeah he took the dive and everybody yeah. shuts up now the second mile you know and, and let's face it i mean whatever good it did let's remember that but still in all if that was any way involved i mean it kind of smells of the franklin cover-up and the abuse of children out of boys town in omaha back you know when in the 70s early 80s i guess right. um and yeah so he he's the sacrificial lamb he's not a good guy but he's not the only guy, but that's how it's going to go down because it's easy enough. And that also gives rise to this whole idea about why the lone gunman in assassinations for who knows what, like maybe a century, has always worked. Make it one person, send them off a cliff, and we'll all go on with our day. Yeah, it goes along with so many of these crimes, just like the Son of Sam murders. Everybody, all the prosecutors and the investigators said the guy was networked, but they had one dude who was crazy enough, and they just said it was him. 
and they let him just, you know, take the brunt. And I mean, yeah, there's a lot more to that, those stories. And fade away. Uh, we've talked in the past, uh, and, and uh, Theo and I have also. Uh, Crowley seems to have, uh, I don't know what you want to call it, multiple personalities. That's truly not what it is. But he seemed to be, he, he had kind of like a, a, a several personas. One of them is this kind of clowny thing, which I think he sold as if people would be disarmed and say, well, he can't really do anything. And then he's got his heavy spiritual side. And then to me, what I find most fascinating, and I don't think it's just myself, but that he had this access to Britain's power structure and perhaps Germany's, and that was no fooling around. So just laying that out straight, uh, who was this guy? I mean, he's he's a he's a giant. I mean, that's one of the reasons why he's considered one of the greatest hundred of you know Englishmen of all time. It's just he is uh, a multifaceted, very intelligent, you know, uh, aristocratic, bred and born an educated uh, person who left an enormous repository of writings of all different stripes and, t- and kinds. I mean, he wrote for Vanity Fair, which is still around today. I mean, this guy, they don't even know how many pseudonyms he had. I couldn't figure it out, but it's somewhere like 25. Like, he actually was writing for V-Rex, Fatherland. Und- he wrote almost all of the... the, the um, he was like an automatic writer. He would never go back and correct anything. So he could just write wonderful prose without a lot of changes. But he would write all those magazines with like five different pseudonyms, but it would all be him, you know, and so it would look like it was a normal magazine, which it wasn't. But uh, there was like a little order within his secret society, the OTO, one of the, the levels of the grades is the order of the chameleon, so that is actually part of his secret society kind of uh, grounding is to actually be kind of uh, change a changeling and be that type of person to whoever you're talking to, you know. So, and that is kind of how he expressed himself. He was always, you know, uh, he wasn't he wasn't a person of like real internal integrity. So it's it's really a hard. He's a hard person to study and understand because of his complexity. Well, with his, his dark uh, pursuits, if you will, uh, would you consider that very serious? I mean, there seemed to be a showman side of him where he liked to attract attention, and that served his purpose, I'm sure. Um, but when it comes to what I think a lot of people embrace to this day, which is kind of a, a sad commentary on where we're going, uh, you know, collectively uh, in, in a moral and spiritual sense, uh, with him being a practitioner, you know, when you said automatic tra- uh, uh, writing, and I was going to say the word trance writing, but I think that's what it was, are you intimating that he was kind of not in his own gourd when he was writing? Well, I think that, I mean, that's just the style of writing. Some people have that that facility is really to write well the first time and never go back and make changes. And that was kind of more of his age. I mean, he came from an age of a much more literate age. But the, clearly some of his writing is uh, what I would term spiritually influenced writing. I mean, his book of the law and his holy books and by his own admission said they just came from some other place outside of his consciousness. So how much of his other work was influenced by that? I don't know. Well, but, it's, well contemporary of his uh, and somebody uh, who, whom he hated and was hated by, uh, also was supposedly an automatic writer, and that was Yates. 
but Yates said he kind of like wasn't there at the time, if you know what I mean. And, and that, you know, but that's Yates. And, and again, he's another individual who I think kind of played up the aspect of if he's walking a little bit on the dark side. Uh, the fact that they didn't like each other would have been really interesting. I'd love to have seen a swing out in some back dark alley in Ireland <laughs> between those two. But it's well, there was a there was a kind of a famous conflict between them, yeah. both of those two, uh, where Crowley, you know, apparently was thrown down the stairs. I tend to believe the Yates version as opposed to Crowley's, which Crowley's was like triumphant, but uh, apparently he got Crowley got thrown down the stairs by some tough. But uh, so they they had they had a pretty serious conflict, I think, in 1899. And yeah, they both were into magic, but Crowley. I was always into the blackest stripe, and I mean, I think he lived it. I don't think, you know, he definitely had a public clownish persona of pomp and, uh, you know, kind of absurd, absurd public absurdism, but at his core, he always went back to magical writing, and he always was doing rituals his whole life. He always was spouting fire against God and Christianity. Every, you know, he wrote consistently work after work after work after work that you know kept his positions and he he saved his final work the theory of magic uh magic of theory and practice in his later life in his 60s you know so it's not like he ever strayed from the path i mean strangely he had uh, a puritan upbringing uh he was a his parents were a follower of the plymouth brethren and while he rejected that version of Christianity and went into Satanism, he kind of kept a Puritan mentality as far as his work was concerned. I mean, he really uh, was not a slouch. No, he was driven. He was productive. And he had a very good run, let's face it. I mean, uh, right till the very end. And, and um, I want to ask you another question, but before I do that, because I think this is going to take you all also along the lines of how he gets involved with other personages and even with the event of 9-11, uh, but before I would even go in there, um, let me throw it to you, Theo, uh, in the time that we've been yakking. Uh, is, is there something you want to uh, uh, throw to uh, William? Yeah, I mean, it might take us down another whole tributary, but uh, if I can. Um, William, I read the book last year. I read it. It's called Strange Angel by George Pendle. It's about Jack Parsons. I thought it gave some uh, fantastic history. And not only of Jack Parsons, but also of the city of Pasadena, and as well as uh, L. Ron Hubbard and Aleister Crowley. There's just one facet of the book that I kind of like, uh, I don't know if I, I could tell um, if, 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 it was, if it was authentic history or not. Um, and it was this. According to the author, George Pendle, uh, Alistair Crowley initially had high hopes for Jack Parsons in that uh, he saw Parsons as somebody who could uh, be a leader for his uh, OTO cult in in, uh, in Southern California, at, at, in, at, to, you know, like an, an, a bastion of it there. Lodge, Agape Lodge. Okay. Now, and I, yeah, that I believe, but he, the author's other point was that uh, that Crowley's OTO was basically a failure as a cult, and that uh, L. Ron Hubbard actually achieved uh, in Dianetics what Crowley was aspiring to achieve with the OTO. For myself, when I consider that, um, having heard from other sources, that, that to this day, you know, celebrities like David Bowie, say, are, are OTO members, 
I kind of have trouble believing that the OTO was a failure as a cult. What, what do you think? Well, I think that it still had an international influence, and it definitely had, I mean, after all my reading, it definitely had lodges and in, in places all over the world. I mean, there were OTO lodges uh, back in Crowley's day. You know, he died in 1947. There were lodges in L.A. There were lodges in, you know, I've known these lodges in Detroit, back when Detroit was kind of more wealthy, New York, um, Let's see where else. There was uh, one in British Columbia. So, you know, and then there were the, the ones that were in uh, England and Germany. So there were, and there were outposts there. So as far as a failure for this guy to write that, I think is pretty uh, at odds with the facts because right now you can just go online and see how many OTO lodges there are in this country. They are all over the place. There's an kind OTO was, lodge in Omaha. Pardon me? That's kind of what I was thinking. Yeah, there's an OTO lodge in almost every major city in the United States. There are OTO lodges in England, and there are OTO outposts all over. You know, Italy has a huge Crowley following. Uh, Germany is the original. The originator of OTO is not um, is not Crowley. Crowley was actually a person who became the head in 1925. It was started as a, a German secret society, and uh, they claimed, you know, their Ascent or descent came from straight from the Templars, so it's the Oriental Templar organization. Uh, and the OTO is also an ideogram, so that's how these guys think. You know, it's like they also not only does it stand for an acronym, it's an ideogram of, you know, well, you can figure it out. All right. Yeah. Um, actually, what, what uh, Theo asked is along the lines that I think that we all were, were going to maybe a little bit, a couple of spaces forward. Uh, and I think we'll reach that again because it, it, it seems, you know, I'm, I'm being a little bit foolish here, but with Crowley in the first half of the 20th century, it's almost like Kevin Bacon, like all movies go back to Kevin Bacon. <laughs> you know? right. Crowley's like been in everything and anything that comes up, I mean, he's there. Um, and right. so I think, you know, I'm most interested in his involvement in World War One and Two, and you're the one that startled me, I guess maybe a year or so ago, after I was reading about the situation prior to the Lusitania sinking, where Germany was importuning the government of the United States, don't send passengers over on the Lusitania, because basically we know you're using them as human shields, and we were. And Virick was involved in that situation trying to get the government to go along with this because the rules of engagement on the seas indicated that it was fair game if the Lusitania, as other ships were carrying munitions and stores to the Brits, uh, that it, they could be sunk and that would be fair dinkum. And Virick was one of the people that was trying to uh, get a notice put in, uh, I think, 50 U.S. major daily newspapers Warning people, do not board the Lusitania. That didn't happen because uh, Wilson and his people just somehow didn't get it out there. But where am I going with this? You're the one that told me that Crowley and Virick knew each other and I guess worked together. Um, and I was shocked about that because Virick in at least World War I was on this side of the pond. He may not have been in World War II. But would you speak to that? Involvement, which which obviously puts Crowley right in the middle 
of, um, you know, hanging with the boys, Churchill and others, uh, through the, like I said, through the both world wars. You want to pick it up there, William? Sure. I mean, it's actually one of the astonishing pieces of lost history is Crowley's relationship to Virek, to the Lusitania, to the outbreak of World War One for the United States, uh, his spy activities. I mean, for me, he left so many notes in his different writings about his spy activities that it's really undeniable. And uh, Jerry Spence, he's a historian in Idaho, wrote a book called uh, Secret Agent 666, which was a kind of an extrapolation on one of his articles that he wrote for a scholarly journal about something he'd found out about Crowley being a spy. And so I had read that when I was doing my original work, and I could probably expand upon his book with another 100 pages of information that he uh, didn't see. Like he le- Crowley left notes in Moonchild, and he left notes in uh, his confessions and all kinds of stuff that indicated he always knew. And he always was able – I mean, back in those days, if you were a traitor in England, you got hung. But Crowley always came back to England, wherever he was, whether he was in Italy, France, United States, he always was able to get back in. And he had made journey. Uh, this is I'm going kind of too too long here. I'll, I'll bring it back to it. But he was in weird places at different times in his life. He was in Russia pre-revolution. He was in uh, Rome when Mussolini marched on Rome with his black shirts for that fascist revolution. He was in the United States when England's primary goal in World War One, other than beating the Germans, was getting the United States into war. Yeah. I mean, that was like the, what the Israelis want right now from the U.S. was always get them into war on their side. Well, that was, you know, the English, English were the Israelis of the turn of the century. So uh, Crowley was right in the mix. I mean, he was really working with Burek. I mean, he ran the Fatherland and the other book, the magazine that uh, Burek had was called The International. And Crowley uh, was doing a lot of the writing. He had said in his confessions you know, he was trying to act like, uh, you know, he was he was doing, inserting his own propaganda to make the Germans even worse. Breck was half German, half English. So he was definitely a German sympathizer all the way up until after World War II. And they had a, they had a relationship that spanned decades. They were not, they didn't have something that broke off. I mean, I, there's, I've actually held writing between Breck and Crowley that's in one of these libraries, uh, you know, around the United States. In, from the 30s. So it's clear that, you know, they were long-term friends and they were clearly playing a game. I mean, Burek was associated with the, the Bund, which was the pro-German thing. But uh, and, and another interesting fact was that Crowley came to the United States on the Lusitania and probably had something to do in making sure that thing hit the bottom of the ocean. So uh, when he left the United States, he said my work, he wrote in his one of his notes, I can't remember if it was in Confessions or something else, but he said my work is done. United States in the war, is in the war, you know, in the great war on the side of England. He's taking credit for partial, you know, I don't think he took full credit, but he took partial credit for their involvement. Um, there United were a number, States involvement. There were a number of books that came out um, about which movies were made, and pretty popular movies, uh, kind of mixed fiction with fact, <laughs> used the convention of one character <clears throat> being somebody that was everywhere at all times. I'll give you two examples. One would have been Dustin Hoffman in Little Big Man, and another one would have been the character played by, and I can't remember his name, he was in Cuckoo's Nest, oh, Brad, uh, it's not coming to me, but the person in, if you guys remember, 
ragtime. Uh, the brother-in-law who just happened to be everywhere, you know, he was he got thrown in jail and he watched Houdini break out of a straitjacket, you know, that kind of thing. Right. You use a, what they would call a composite figure. Or Gump as well. Yes, that's right, exactly. Very good. What, well, so what's the Woody Allen movie, too? Oh, Zellig. guys everywhere. Zellig. Zellig. <laughs> but well, that's interesting you bring up, like, uh, Forrest Gump, because in one of the conversations I had with this guy from Future Quake about two years ago, he said Crowley was like the Forrest Gump of the, yes. you know, of old and the early 20th century, and there's a lot of truth to that. But, you know, and that's what struck me. I mean, it's almost like the Carly Simon song, you know, you where you should be all the time, and when you're not, you're with some underworld spy or the wife of your best friend or something. And it's like, but he did it. And I'm not applauding him, but you got to give the guy some kudos for walking in and out of all these what you would call diametrically opposed and, and philosophically opposed organizations and, if you will, nation states, and never got a drop on them. And, I mean, I was going to make a smart comment, which I deferred, and I won't make it now. When you were talking about being, you know, half German, half Brit, I was going to say, well, who the hell is it? You know what I mean? If you're Britain, you're half German. If you're in you know, Germany, you're half British. But, I mean, and I know that in, in a, some university in this uh, country, you came upon some really provocative uh, correspondence. And I believe one of the letters uh, emanated from Crowley's stay in Germany and just blew me away. So, I mean... What do you take away from the fact that this guy could go between both theaters, if you will, and really not get jailed or, or you know, shot, killed, or otherwise? He was an asset. I mean, clearly an asset. And I don't think that's uncommon. You have so many occultists who are perfect for the spy world. I mean, deceptive, uh, secretive, uh, willing to, you know, have no moral code, basically. Crowley himself said, you know, Anybody who crosses me ends up dead or in the the loony bin, you know. So Crowley was really ruthless. A modern and, uh, the uh, Michael right? Aquino. Right. So, you know, I think uh, I think that you know he was the right man for the job. If you were a, a spy master, who wouldn't you want a super intelligent, multilingual, uh, you know, highly educated? Literate, I don't know, you know, just the guy like Crowley who would do what you said. I mean, Crowley himself said he's likened himself John Sykes' dog, which is uh, from, I think it's from Oliver or one of the, God, it's like the John Sykes was this murderer from, I, I can't remember what book it was, but he was always beating his dog and his dog would co always come back. Isn't, oh, isn't, isn't part of the, uh, the attraction to use these types of people as spies, uh, all these elite occultists, also because being members of multiple secret societies, occult secret societies, you know, these secret societies, they take oaths that transcend national ties. Uh, yeah. Sure. So, I mean, it's known that Maxwell Knight, who was the spy master of World War II, he had an association with Crowley, and his underling was Ian Fleming. Ian Fleming is the writer of the James Bond novels, and Ian Fleming was uh, alleged to be Crowley's later-in-life handler. And it's interesting because Ian Fleming's mother was the paramour of a guy who, uh, his name is uh, Augustus John, who was a, a portrait artist who did portraits of all the famous people of England, including two of Crowley himself. So... It's not all, there's all kinds of strange connections and 
Anyway, so, you know, these guys all knew Crowley, and, uh, they, you know, there's stories about them wanting to figure out, talk to Crowley about Hitler's obsession with the occult, and, you know, there's some pretty dicey material out there about those relationships, but it's clear that, you know, something was there, and there was a, there, there's a huge dossier about Crowley in the MI5, you know, in England that they don't want to, will never disclose, probably. Uh, we're at the bottom of the hour, and um, let's once again go through all that you do have out there, uh, William. Uh, there are two books. Now, why don't you tell us about the website as well? Uh, you, you've definitely revamped that and made that uh, a, a great deal more attractive. I mean, not that it, the sizzle sells, but, yeah, it does. Uh, yeah, my last one was a joke. I mean, I'm going to get rid of that website. I don't like that company. I've been trying to work with all these different companies who say they can do all this great stuff, and, I'm not as enthusiastic. Somebody said they give me a free website, and you know, and then they go, "Well, if you want to upgrade, it's thirty-five dollars." Right, you get what you pay for. But I mean, this one is is, is decent. Um, I mean, I'm happy with it. I think people will be too. Uh, but why don't you tell them where they can find out more about you, and also uh, how to purchase uh, the books or the, or the uh, documentaries on DVD? Yeah, you can go. I have a WordPress site up now where I'm writing articles about this whole abomination, abomination. Uh, that is at occult911.wordpress.com. You can go to www.occult911.com. That's kind of my old, um, old website, which I've kind of in the process of trying to upgrade. And all my books are available on Amazon and Kindle. That's usually the best way and the more, most easy way for people to uh, obtain them. Also, I, I wanted to ask you, um, the cover photo <clears throat> is kind of clever, and, and we're talking about, obviously, the prophet of evil. Uh, what I wanted to ask you, because something came up the other day, and, and um, I told myself the next time I speak with you, I'd, I'd like to ask you about it. <clears throat> that photo of him, which you, you've put, you've uh, transposed the towers against, uh, with the two thumbs sticking out, was that a some kind? Was that like a common like evil thing there, or was that Crowley's thing? Well, uh, Crowley, you know, he knew all the hand gestures and hand signs, so he's like made all these things come together in his own stance. And it was he, he had the horns of Pan there, which symbolized the devil, so he's got his thumb sticking out. He has his face in between two posts. So it's almost like this Masonic uh, Boaz and Jachin, and he thought okay. of himself as a god. So he's in between there. And then he has the hat with the triangle, which represents the Kabbalah, and the all-seeing eye on top of that. That's his magical garb. Well, I just transposed... The symbolic representation of Boaz and Jachin, which are arguably the twin towers, twin towers for his right. arms. All right, because so I mean, that, and then made some like little drawings of the planes with their flight numbers on there. I'm sorry I didn't get the name of the movie, but it was one of these things where I couldn't sleep and I, I just you know clicked on the TV. And I was watching some really bad movie, hoping I could go to sleep, and it was it was it was about I guess some kind of uh, <clears throat> disaffected uh, kid. Involved in Satanism or whatever, but it, it wasn't really an uplifting movie. But at some point, that actor struck that pose, and I went, "Whoa, what's that about?" And I thought back, of course, to that uh, famous photo of um, Crowley, which you have used on the cover, and that's why I was just wondering: was like, was he aping Crowley, or was that some kind of like symbolism that we're supposed to get, like in the old days, back in what the 19th century, the hand inside the vest was was Masonic and was kind of like you know, winking and yeah. nod. Uh, but I saw yeah. that. And that. Yeah, I think you're supposed to. I mean, for those on the inside, that's what you're supposed to get. And it's interesting, in my new book, this guy who was the child killer, he makes that same kind of horns of pan sign all the time. So 
So you can see that in my new book. If you just flip through the back pages, I just see all the pictures. It's uh, obviously I, doing it. I don't want to get you down that road because we're going to revisit that. I think you'll be good enough to come on again to speak to that and that alone. For someone who had been incarcerated wrongly, to come out and act as that individual did, you don't do that if you've been somebody that's been jugged wrongly for so many years. I mean, that is like absolutely in your face. Kiss my ass. Oh, yeah. I mean, the guy is not all there. I mean, he's not really fully sane. I mean, he's no no real Satanist really is, you know, centered and uh, sensible in a lot of ways, but this guy's incredibly dangerous. I mean, I cannot stress that enough. And he's playing, he has ambitions that are very, uh, you know, Manson-esque. So people really should be very aware. I think we'll be seeing him again. <laughs> not too tough. Yeah, I mean, it's... The crazy thing about this is the the final chapter hasn't been written yet. You know, it's still Theo jumped the gun on this, and uh, I want to hit this before we get too uh, much further into the interview because time has been flying by, and we'll and leave a lot more questions probably after we've done this interview. But Theo had hit um, the whole Jet Propulsion Lab thing and uh, L. Ron Hubbard and the whole deal that was going on in California, and there again he pops up. And I would be, I think it would be safe to say that the uh, is it Los Angeles OTO is probably the most popular or well, most well-known of all the lodges yeah. in this country. So I think there's a very, very active lodge in Berkeley where Crowley's like uh, Larry McMurtry, who was kind of his his, his main follower, went. Uh, and there's Mc actually a huge one in uh, Oregon. And strangely enough. And I know. I'm thinking the same thing, Theo. We like Larry McMurtry. He was involved in this, too. No, not Larry. His name. What did I? What is his guy? What's his? Grady McMurtry. All right, we're, all right. We feel better now, don't we, Theo? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> God, I I'll, I'll never watch Lonesome Dove again. I apologize. That's okay. We're awake though. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's good. I woke you up. But you know, it's interesting. Also, there's some parallels here because, uh, I mean, to, to me, Rosicrucianism—they're uh, the real heavyweights. Everybody bangs on the Masons, but I think the Rosicrucians hang out the Masons to take the pinata banging, but they have been very heavy shakers and movers for a long time. They predate, I think, Freemasonry, if I've got that right. And they also, the German Lodge considers itself the preeminent lodge, and their extension in the United States is in um, uh, Quakerstown, Pennsylvania. Uh, and they say we are the true descendants of the German Lodge. And there's also one, a Rosicrucian Lodge out in, in uh, California, I think around, what, Santa Cruz or something like that? It's uh, in downtown San Jose. It's on a full city block. Okay, so it was saying something, right? But um, they, the German, the, the Pennsylvania it's people. close enough. <laughs> close enough. If it starts with San or San. I just know that because I used to have to take a bus down there when I was in classes, and uh, they would walk us around to show us all the Egyptian artifacts. So you've been in that one, is that correct? Many times, yes, many times. All right, and no will effects afterwards? have a Kevin Bacon room. They've got your own obelisk. I mean, it's, it's really <laughs> something else. All the basic food groups. They have Manly P. Hall books in the bookstore. Uh, uh, so anyway, but, but there is also an OTO branch, uh, again, it's starting in Germany. Well, I mean, like, what didn't start in Germany? And that's not a knock on them. It's just the way it is. And uh, and But, but the, you know, the Pennsylvania um Rosicrucians turn their nose up at the uh, California Lodge, but that is not the case with the OTO, uh, obviously. And, and, you know, I don't want to get into this really, but I just have to mention something too. You know, like like Yates is supposed to be a proponent of uh, what? The Golden, the Hermetic, oh, here we go. Uh, golden Dawn. The, the Hermetic Order, order of the, the Golden Dawn. 
Yeah, the Golden Dawn. Which is a Rosicrucian group. Is it? All right. Yeah. Let me throw one. Uh, the other one that's, that usually comes up uh, in the same conversation is Astro Argentum. Right. That's Crowley. That's Crowley, specifically Crowley's magical organization, which is supposed to be leaderless, and you can progress up the grades by yourself. Do with that wilt. <clears throat> yeah. And that means Silver Star, so it references the moon. And that's the, all right. There you go. All right, um, but again, going back to the can of worms that Theo opened up and one in which we definitely want to crawl, uh, there's a whole continuum going on there. And in an email exchange that we had, I mean, you were banging things out, and I'm like, oh, oh, oh. So um, we're going to kind of let you take that over because there's a lot of ground to cover in a short period in which to do it, so take it away. Well, it's just that Crowley's you know, legacy is, is amazing how many people who've done – world-shaping or world-altering events have referenced or had experience with Crowley. I mean, uh, even the there was an offshoot of the OTO Lodge called the Solar Lodge, which Manson was arguably a member of. And uh, so, you know, there's a Manson uh, thing there. There's also the process was influenced by Crowley. Scientology has all kinds of black magic, I mean, in there, integrated within it, just like uh, L. Ron Hubbard's son tried to tell everybody that. Yeah, there was a kind of a famous article he did for penthouse but he was on almost every christian show back then you can see him all on youtube talking about his dad but i mean it's just there's an incredible you know uh, <clears throat> incredible impact he's had on on culture and people who have adapted or believed in his views and um you know it's it's really some secret some known some unknown but you know all distills down to his general Dictum, which is, you know, do whatever you want, do what you want. The 60s, the Beatles, uh, Leary, uh, you know, people, I mean, some of the head people in the process church for the final judgment, which uh, Manson obviously was n very knowledgeable about. Uh, he said they studied Crowley all the time. His name's Timothy Wiley. And uh, so, you know, and, and it even goes into, to, our larger culture, I mean, you see, uh, what else is there? It's uh, Eyes Wide Shut has references to the process in it. Now, uh, once I've watched it again, it's incredible. There's some really even heavier stuff in there that a lot of people don't, that have gone right, right through their eyes, uh, which went through my eyes as well. Uh, and uh, Crowley's concept of the birth of the child, which is, his idea was he was trying to give birth to this new age of Horus. He called it the child. He referenced it, and uh, you know he said he would. His timing was going. It was going to happen in the 60s, and you saw this upswing in the 60s that uh, you know was this this kind of crow, ideal Crowley society of rebellion and the death of Christianity, drug use, free sex, free love, and uh, that birth of the child may have been something referenced in 2001 in Kubrick's film 2001. And it parallels right there with the events of 9-11. So it's just a super deep secret society connection. And it's not even arguable with Kubrick. Actually, they're doing it. They have a huge Kubrick display on right now in L.A. And there's a lot of pictures in there. of the. Uh, they actually have the actual child that they used inside the egg. Right. Uh, at the very yep. end. So there's kind of like a symbolic tie to Crowley. He, you know, the, the child was within an egg in Crowley's uh, vision, although, you know, and there, so that, that kind of comes up at the very end of 2001. But 
there's also pictures of Kubrick there with Dan, uh, with Arthur C. Clarke. So, you know, it just, there's just a huge mm. off, you know, this guy leaving to all this like evil bread to, that gave rise to the 20th century. Right. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's still impacting culture. I mean, you see Marilyn Manson, you see Led Zeppelin. And it goes even into my new book, and that's why I got interested in the subject matter of the West Memphis Three because the central character is a, you know, another Crowley fan. Well, I got three quick questions to ask you, and if you want to close out uh, with 9/11, I think that's probably a good way to go. Uh, I also want to give Theo a, a chance to jump in, so I'll make mine quick. Um, one question I would ask you is, <clears throat> if there is an Alistair Crowley, <clears throat> do we not have the events that kind of seem to? Uh, facilitate, shall we say, uh, a certain moral and spiritual trend in this country that wasn't all that positive started in the 70s. And, you know, there's always a duality involved in this, you know, oh, peace, love, and rock and roll. And, of course, along with that came, you know, screw, like, screw your head off without any kind of guilt, drugs, and other things. Uh, would you say that without Crowley we don't have that in the United States, or is that too broad a statement? I, I mean, I I think that he he was such a centralized figure and so knowledgeable and had – Victims that were easily assessed that he was a, a tremendous influence. So without him, it may not have gone that same way. But it's just something that, you know, because of his, he was, he had a philosophic view of like, do, he actually broke down his statement, do what thou wilt, but do is to take action in the world. You know, he wanted his followers to be uh, involved in the culture. And so, you know, it's hard to say. Uh, that he wouldn't have had an in- impact if he was gone, whether things have been changed. But I, he, his, the tendrils of his thought <laughs> interspersed the entire 20th century. So it's hard to say if things, you know, things would definitely be different without him, without his writings available. All right, Theo, I'm going to throw it back to you before I ask another one. I've heard the guy was a part of more secret societies than maybe anybody who ever lived. Is, is that true? Yeah, so he he was he he encouraged himself and all of his followers to uh, in, get involved in any occult group they could. So Crowley himself was, you know, OTO Mason. He he claimed to be a 33rd degree Mason. He was part of the Golden Dawn. He started the AA, and he would try to become. He was arguably uh, part of witch covens. He started. So he was. Pardon me. He started the AA. Well, no, not the AA, the Argem, Argentum, Astrum Argentum, which is the right. We Silver Star. Yeah. Not, not Alcoholics Anonymous. Different <laughs> S- settle down, Theo. But he actually knew the guy who was in the Rosicrucians in San Jose. He actually went out to visit him and went by, and he, he supposedly had some land out in the United States. So he was. He said in, in one of his writings, which I don't have reference here, he said he had enough honorary titles and that would – if, if he had emblems for the mall, it would bury an elephant. So, you know, he was involved and networked, uh, you know, to the hill. <clears throat> All right. Um, what I'm wondering is um, I had a little loony period in the early 70s when Black Sabbath came on the four. Uh, Coven was another group that was out there. Uh, for whatever reasons, we sort of screwed around with Ouija boards and stuff. And thankfully for me, nothing really happened. But uh, Crowley was, was not really, you know, we never heard of Crowley. Now, of course, um, in the late 90s, and this is my observation alone, but in the late 90s and certainly 
to go along with what Ronnie Claxton was saying about the, the, the real beginning of a new millennium, 9-11-2001, all of a sudden I know Crowley. And what I'm asking you is, Theo, myself, you, and others are familiar with him because of where we researched. But what I'm wondering now is, because I can't see from the outside in, but you can, I think, and that is, is, this, is there a resurgence of him that was probably passed up in a couple of decades or was it just that we were kind of like not initiated? And I don't mean that in the, you know, in the real specific sense. Uh, and we just didn't see him, but he was there. Is something going on where he's come to the fore as some kind of like, you know, rock star, um, great feel for the past nostalgia, and also somebody people can rally around behind now uh, as we go into whatever the heck we're going into uh, in this new period? Yeah, I think so. I think there's a lot more tolerance for kind of, uh, witchcraft through Harry Potter and the common culture and what people see. So it's a lot easier. And Crowley, you know, people's interpretation of Crowley is different. Mine is totally different because I went back and looked at core documents. But there are other books out there by intellectuals who, you know, tout Crowley as the great savior of mankind, and they don't go into his kind of darker elements. But uh, I do think that there's just a general resurgence in interest in the occult. And you can, for me, I see it all over the place. And, uh, you know, in the music and the, you, I mean, the video, music videos now are pretty, pretty much straight occultic. All of them are. And so I think that anywhere that is, people's interest in magic and Crowleyism will, will grow. So, uh, yeah, I guess it is kind of cyclical. Although this version okay. of the kind of darker arts seems to be, much more pitch black than, you know, right. anything that I, I recollect from the, you know, looking back at the 60s or 70s, although the, that era was chaotic as hell, you know. I think that was the portal through which uh, this whole thing uh, entered, and now we're seeing uh, an es escalation, if you will. Uh, and you got a couple of minutes of this, and we got to get out of here. Um, not that we can't revisit this, and we probably will at another time, but I, uh, we would be leaving people in the dark and being um, kind of... Um, a teaser if we did not talk about Crowley and 9-11. How the heck did that happen? Right. I mean, for me, that's I went back to Crowley from 9-11. I had no idea about Crowley five years ago. Uh, I just was a 9-11. I was really kind of just a general independent researcher. I had researched uh, the whole thing that went down in Oklahoma. I realized that there was a lot more to that story, as well as Waco and Ruby Ridge and, you know, all these other events that we were told. You know, the way they happened, there was a whole di different thing. I also had had a kind of a, a small, you know, a, a, uh, involvement in the death of the murder of Vince Foster. He was clearly murdered. I had worked for one of the lawyers kind of on a side case. But, you know, so I'd known that there's a whole, usually a whole other story to events. And then 9-11 happened. I believe the cover story. And, you know, that kind of, that lie fell from my eyes and, I recognized it was a total inside job, and uh, then I also just, through my research, I just kept seeing these numbers popping up all the time, 11, the date of the event, and I tried to figure it out, and I think the first thing that really I'd noticed that there was, you know, a correlation beyond the, the this realm of probabilities was this uh, Captain May out of Texas. Oh, they kind of no. keyed into it. So then I started seeing these numbers, and I just started researching what is this 11. So then it all distilled, and... I realized what 93 meant, which is the primary, one of Crowley's primary numbers that in the Kabbalah it represents, in the Greek Kabbalah it represents uh, agape, 
and thelema, which both equal 93. And you see the 11, 93, 77, and 175. 175 is some kind of ritual Crowley did. Something that I keyed in on. So, you know, then I, I realized once that Crowley was involved in 9-11 and there's all kinds of occult markers and signatures, I went back and read. And I actually then I read the the, the auto the biographies, which, you know, I – I knew some were done by people from the OTO, and then so I just went back and read his core material, collected as much imager, images as I could, and I got a whole different picture of Crowley than anybody had ever written. I mean, the, the research opportunities by the Internet really afforded a, yeah. uh, the opportunity to compile all of his writings, and which I think other people who got into Crowley couldn't do. They usually would just read a couple of his major works, maybe Magic and Theory and Practice, but I read a lot of his non uh, his fiction and got a got a real good understanding of his life and I realized that somebody who put together ninety three uh the events of two thousand one uh really liked Crowley. Well we can't get all into it now because if we could the book wouldn't have been worth it, but the book is worth it. And you explain fully what you're talking about with regard to uh, numerology, uh Crowley and what we saw in nine eleven. Would would that be kind of like a generalistic statement that would be correct? Yes. All right. This has been William Ramsey. He is the author of two books, uh, one of which we spoke about in as much depth as we could, and that deals with Prophet of Evil. That's the short uh, title uh, with regard to Alistair Crowley. He's got a new one out now. Um, very, very, uh, I tell you what, and I'm not greasing you when I say this, William. Uh, this is as, as upsetting as what In Cold Blood did to me uh, as a 16-year-old when that came out, Truman Capote's book about the uh, – the murder of a family by uh, uh, two guys who thought there was money there. At any rate, um, it's disturbing. It, it really is. It's, it, if they made a movie out of this, it should be black and white because there's not too much color involved in this. Uh, but it's the truth. Uh, he's, he's been willing to go into this, and, um, and he's really found a lot of gold in that. Uh, and I don't mean in, in a financial way, but I mean in, in some really good stuff that you're not going to find anywhere else in any books or in any broadcast station or anything. So... Uh, and also we have the DVDs that are out there. But go to the website by all means. Uh, that's occult911.com. There are two other flanking uh, websites he's mentioned, and they'll be up with the links with this whole audio. And um, we're not done with this whatsoever. Uh, Theo, I want to thank you for being with us. Uh, you've read the book, and you, you've got a history with William, and you know that he's a straight shooter. And I would say to folks, by all means, check it out. And William, thank you very much for being with us. And uh, by all means, maybe next month you can come back on with us. For sure. Love to. Thanks for having me.